why would I go walking in the Laguna? And they were like, well, it's really changed. You should come. And so I went, it's this beautiful redone area that's really coming back to life. I mean, they've done amazing work at the Laguna Foundation, but everybody walking around there, they had no idea about the history of the place. They had no idea of what had happened before to cause it to be a disaster area that still has toxic chemicals, you know, and it, it just horrifies me. The way that people don't remember history, it's the same thing that we don't remember natural history. And in, unless we start challenging these narratives, we're not actually going to survive. Greetings, podcast listeners. That was author Iris Jamal Dunkel talking about her book, West Fire Archive, a recent selection for the Mountain West Poetry Series at the Center for Literary Publishing. Iris writes and lives in Northern California, where she teaches at Napa Valley College and is the poetry director of the Napa Valley Writers' Conference an award-winning literary biographer, essayist, and poet. Her poetry collections include Interrupted Geographies, Gold Passage, and There's a Ghost in This Machine of Air. She's also the author of Charmian Kittredge London, trailblazer, author, adventurer. Joining Iris in the studio is associate editor and graduate intern at the Center for Literary Publishing, Anne-Marie Delfino. Originally from San Diego, Anne-Marie is an MFA candidate in poetry at Colorado State University. This week's episode, recorded in April 2021, joins in conversation author and copy editor. Iris and Anne-Marie will talk about poetry's relationship to finding histories we've forgotten, particularly those of women, and how writing about the environment bridges the historical and the personal to recover what was thought erased. Iris starts the conversation with background on her book, Westfire Archive. It was a um, project that began when I was in the archives at the Huntington Library, researching the life of Charmian Kittredge London. Uh, Charmian Kittredge London was Jack Lennon's wife and her, late, her, her life had all but been erased. And so I had begun working on a biography about her. But as I encountered the archives, um, I found it was, it was really emotional about her erasure. And so I turned, of course, as a poet, <laughs> I turned to poetry and started um, writing poems off of her diary entries and her drafts of a manuscript called The Log of the Dirigo that was never published. And that was the first series of poems I created for this book. Um, But as I was creating it, I started to see the problem of Jack London being at the center of her story. And so um, I made the, the decision to erase him from the text, um, which really empowered the project. But I also started, as I was writing this project, I live in Northern California and uh, we were struck by wildfires in 2017. And at the same time, I lost my mother to ovarian cancer. And so my narrative was severely interrupted. And so um, I started to think about the project in a wider scope. It wasn't just about a single individual who I was researching. It became much more about 
the story of the West that I've been told and I'd inherited this androcentric story of plentiful land that can just be reused and reused that was falling apart, you know, as I was seeing it. And my family had come from, um, had migrated to California from the Dust Bowl. And so <laughs> we had gone from one disaster now to another. And so I started to really question those things and the way we erase um, what's uncomfortable about history. And so that's really where the project began. Awesome, thank you for giving us that context. In the research and archiving process, are there elements of that genre or sort of like modes of thinking in, in the field of research that influenced your poetry or, or changed your approach to creative writing? Certainly, all of my books I've, I've written in conversation with archives and so um, I'm also a literary scholar and I've worked in that area. And I feel a real, as a, as a poet, I feel a very different experience when I'm with an archival document or an artifact of some kind than I do as a scholar, right? And so I think it's really important to understand that there's a huge space like lyric biography where uh, creative writing engages with artifacts and the erasure of artifacts as a way to find um, a story that someone couldn't find working in prose or um, in other genres because it's, you know, poetry has a way to find the emotional landscape that's left after the erasure. And I think that's what, um, that's what I really was fueled by in this project. So thinking about how the fires are sort of one form of, of literal erasure to a landscape and the relationship to fire to this book, I was wondering how did the writing process uh, factor into your like emotional processing of experiencing those fires in 2017 or the other things that were going on in your life at the time? Yeah, I think it's a really important question because as we're experiencing grief and trauma from um, disasters, uh, it's really it's really hard to write about it. You know, you're just, you're literally trying, like during the 2017 fires, we were waiting to see if we needed to evacuate. You know, I mean, it was really, uh, and smoke was covering everything. We couldn't breathe. Um, we were running shelters. I mean, the the day-to-day -day was quite stressful. But I did find that as I was the poet laureate of Sonoma County at the time. And so I felt a real call um, to open up space for people to write about what they were going through. And that really lasted through the year that followed the, the first fires. Unfortunately, we've had many more. And that really opened up my own writing. I also, you know, I had just lost my mother when the fires happened. And so I was in a, and, and I had taken care of her as she was dying of cancer. And so I was in a state of grief before even the fire started. And so some of the poems were written during that time, like the one about uh, the, the eighth day of the wildfires. I drove my kids to the beach because we couldn't breathe. And I thought maybe the air would be better there. And I sat there and I was teaching American literature at the time. And I sat there and read Emerson's uh, essay on nature, um, just straight through. And it's just, and I was also reading the Lost Children Archive at the same time, just a stunning novel. And somehow between those two pieces, that poem emerged as almost, you know, uh, it's quite different than how it emerged that day, but that the, the ability to feel it 
I was able to process it through those other pieces of literature. And I felt like that was a real gift. And the other way I was able to process it was through the archival research that I was doing. So to look back in the archives and find Charmian's diary from right after the 1906 earthquake, which had leveled Santa Rosa, which is where the major wildfires happened. She talked about riding through the devastated city and just crying on her on horseback. And I thought, wow, our whole city was completely built back from that. So of course we'll build back again. And that became the poem that is that was actually widely circulated at the time. Um, it used to be called Sonoma Strong, which was you know, a pretty cheesy title, but it worked for what we were going through. And so I would be asked for poems about the wildfires and that would be read at like meetings that lawyers were getting together or, you know, a museum staff was meeting and they needed something to talk about the fires and they turned to literature. And so it was kind of a, um, as Poet Laureate, it was my poem about the time or the place, you know. I love that framing of both like poetry and archives as a way through which to talk about and, and look at these events and process them, especially in community with each other. Do you mind reading um, one of those poems for us? Sure, I'd love to. This is after the seventh night of the Northern California wildfires. And this is the one I wrote at the beach. For seven nights, there were no stars, only sky muted by smoke. First night, the dry bones of the past rattled the eaves of the hillside of valley oaks. Then raging hot-throated wind stirred, sparked flames until the mountain cracked open. The person is most alone when she looks at the moon-stained red that stoked hillsides shimmering, every house a single cell of the same beast, fragile, and ignitable. I guess one thing I'm wondering about kind of within the theme of genre in your book, there are three distinct sections. There's a biography and autobiography and a recorded history section. And I was wondering if you had different considerations as a writer approaching those sections, did you write the poems in a linear timeline or did you write them sort of separately and then organize them after the fact? And did consideration of like how to frame Charmian's life versus how to write from your own memory versus how to, to tackle these erased histories, did that change the way that you approach the poems in each section? That's a really good question. I, I approach, I did not write this in a linear fashion. Um, I was writing a biography in a pretty linear fashion, as much as I can be linear, which is not so linear. Um, but I, I started with the poems about Charmian, thinking that was a book, that was the whole book was, um, and I wrote enough to make three books. But what I found was, and they weren't in order because they were as I, as I worked with the artifacts and as I worked with the story of Jack London that I had been you know, I grew up in Northern California going to Jack Lennon State Historic Park. You know, I went there in the sixth grade and that's the first time I realized that you could be a writer. And so I kind of adored Jack London and thought that, you know, I thought when I visited the park, that was the only writer I met. 
but his wife was also a writer and she had been erased already from the park's placards and you know her her story as an intellectual of any kind had been erased and so i had a very difficult relationship with that in letting go of jack london's you know my hero worship of jack london and it that so that process alone was one box and i really see as an you know someone working in a biography i have literal you know lawyers boxes of content all over my office um, that's how i do my work and i'm a very tactile uh writer so i need to uh, before i can write about charmian sitting on a bear skin in her home in the house of happy walls i have to touch a bear skin and smell it and see what it's like, what the sunlight's like in that room. Like it's really an exhausting process, but it's the only way that I can feel that 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 moment. And so the first part of the book was really what I thought the book was. And then my life was completely interrupted. And as I learned more about Charmian and as I learned more about the history of the West as I was telling her story, I realized how uh, disturbingly inaccurate it was and how it had actually erased the stories of most of my ancestors. And I came back again and again to the story of when I was growing up in Northern California and I was in my you know, elementary school classroom and I was taught there were no more Pomo or Coast Miwok people, that they had been erased. And I was in a classroom with Pomo and Coast Miwok people when that was said. And I, when I realized that I was horrified and it really opened up my exploration of trying to understand why um, and how we can um, learn the stories that we've let, you know, disappear. You know, the single narrative of the West is really something that's been held together by things that are, no, you know, institutionalized ideas that are no longer going to hold it together. And I, I feel really excited about the future of redefining the West as being inclusive. And so, um, you know, really the last part of my book was bringing my own identity and my own experience, you know, understanding that within this false narrative, especially as I'm turning towards my next, next biography, which is about a woman who was erased from the Western story as well, who wrote about you know, a, a really multi-gendered and multi-ethnic West. Since you mentioned that Charmian's name had been erased from, from so much, how did you first identify that she was erased? Like, where did you see her? And I wonder in your process of, of researching and, and looking into her life, what you might have learned about where we need to look or how we need to see in order to kind of recover these lost narratives. Yes, well, where I had discovered it is I was uh, teaching book discussion group at Jack London State Park as a volunteer. And we decided to teach the book of Jack London, which is Charmian's biography of Jack London. It's a two volume biography written in 1918. So shortly after um, he died. And it's very, um, the first volume is tough to get through, but the second volume um, what I found when I was reading it and teaching it was so accurate as to who Jack Lennon really was. And I started to see that her strength as a writer, and I, I also taught The Log of the Snark, which was her travel narrative about 
traveling through the South Seas on a small yacht um, from the experience of a woman, which was very, very unusual at the time. And I started to see this image emerge that did not match the story that I had read in the park placards or in all of the biographies about Jack Lennon that I'd read. And so I started to, that was where the investigation began. And I found this photograph um, when I was doing research for one of my poems from there's a ghost in this machine of air, which kind of looks at the history of Sonoma County. I found this photograph of, of um, Jack London on horseback. That's really, it's like everywhere. And it's on the garbage cans at Jack London State Historic Park. And I saw that it, it was attributed to Charmian. It was a photo taken by Charmian Kittredge London. And I thought, oh, I didn't know that was taken by her. And then I, of course, like reached out to all these scholars and I said, hey, did you guys know that this picture was taken by Charmian? And their answer is what really started my project. They said, well, we never thought to ask who took that photograph. And so I was like, what else have we not asked about Charmian's life? And what would we learn about not only her life, but the lives of like Jack Lennon and everyone else around, around her? And, you know, we learned a great deal. Like she helped write some of her husband's books. <laughs> That is such a potent metaphor of like looking behind the literal lens of history. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm thinking about other avenues of inheritance and you mentioned Jack London as like a literary influence on you when you were young. Charmian seems like the real muse for this book. Um, and I was wondering if there are other sources of inspiration in your writing life in general, other writers that make up your literary inheritance or that have really influenced you? Yes, there's so many, but especially on this project, as I mentioned already, Lost Children Archive was a really huge influence on um, how I was able to work from archival research in a book format. Like it's like including the process of archival research. It's by Valeria Luiselli. Um, and it's a gorgeous book if you haven't read it. But also really important to my process in this book, which was the idea of being uh, non-linear as a way to find, you know, kind of Helene Thixou's idea of not approaching, not approaching history as a linear narrative anymore because it's not my history. It's not a lot of people's history. Um, and so I was greatly influenced by, you know, I've always been influenced by her work. Brenda Hellman is, you know, some of her lines are actually in the book. Um, and when I read Loose Sugar, when I was a, a grad student at NYU, I wrote like an entire book of poems in the margins just because I had never felt something so deeply in reading before. And I had the same reaction to Ann Carson's work, um, who works in the archives, and Susan Howe. Just that idea of allowing us to have a conversation, a fragmented conversation with a past that's fragmented. Um, they it, it really empowered me. And another influence really was, um, there's two. Amy Lowell, strangely enough, I wrote my dissertation on her, but in her poem, Sisters, she really gives us this invocation as the poets of the future to reach back into the past and get to know what was not said about the women who came, our foremothers, the women who came before us. And that's really kind of guided my, my research throughout. 
my life as a writer. And the final influence has been Forrest Gander, whose work really taught me to not, you know, when you're working on a biography, it's very narrative. Um, and so it was hard to move from narrative, narrative mind to lyric fragmented mind and really Forrest Gander's work and his, you know, advice as a writer really helped me open it up to let myself not have to cling to a narrative and to let the fragmentation happen, which is really kind of, it's really the cracks between things where you really grow and, and create these lyric narratives. I feel like that idea really plays into the way that the book is structured because there is this conversation between fragments and epigraphs and the very like more narrative structure that sort of weaves Charmian's life together for us. And I was wondering if you might say more about the epigraph to the book entire from Ann Carson that says, to live past the end of your myth is a perilous thing. Could you talk more about coming to that as sort of the, the preface to your book and what it means to the collection? It's perilous to actually have to engage with what we believe in, uh, we believed was true. I think you see this a lot when um, people have to deal with their perceived, even like with their, like people perceiving their anti-racism or, you know, anything that they're asked to confront in themselves. And I think for a Western writer to confront the West, to con confront Wallace Stegner and John Steinbeck and Jack London and, and say, wait, wait a second, you're not actually telling the truth, you know? That felt scary. It felt scary, um, but it felt, it felt like so incredibly necessary. And um, I think that idea of perilous is, I think to do great things, you have to pursue something perilous. Nothing great has happened without, you know, doing something perilous. You know, I think that's, I think that's the reality of it. And so for me, the space that I created this book in and the power that I felt as a writer and the importance that I felt of the project came from engaging that, you know, the, the perilous path of, of questioning the truths that I'd been raised on. One poem I saw that come up in particularly was Dark Albums. And I wondered if you would be so kind as to read that for us. Sure, I'd love to. Dark albums. That putting together the patchwork of photos into the spined order of dark leather albums was for solace, attending to the fray that had begun to blur the corners of her mind like a cataract. White grease pencil notes, ghosts of names, a past we've forgotten the words to, some may say, let her sleep, heart bundled in briars, mouth sewn shut. The dawn staining awake again and again over the mountain that is the beginning of the world. Oh, but every sleep has its end and here we are. The pages that were almost lost to time have awoken again piecing back the story of a life, pixel by pixel, 
until there she is, charming Kittredge London, riding astride on her sorrel mare, dust kicking up, the whole sky above opening like a question. Thank you. Can I, can I give you background on it? Yes, please. This book came from the idea that as I was working on the project of writing Charmian's biography, the digital archives of um, the album she kept of her life and Jack Lennon's life, which she kept meticulously, which were rotting away in the basement of the Huntington Library, were finally being digitized. And it was so amazing because suddenly everyone had access to these photos of Charmian and it felt so liberating. Um, and so part of this poem came from that idea of what, what's next now that everyone can see her. And the other piece of it was while I was working on the book, the House of Happy Walls, which is the museum, it was Charmian's home and it was the museum at the park um, was remodeled. And so it was totally gutted and I got to, sneak in there and, and look at everything without the artifacts. And so you could actually see things that had been covered up. And I found the room that they had called upstairs was her guest room. I found it had this folding down desk. And then I found in the closet, all these bins for, you know, keeping photographs and, and maps. And um, I was like, oh my gosh, this is her clippings room. Like this is, she writes about this. And so I told the, you know, I was able to get it corrected in the, in the state archives, but that idea of until we like start looking at things through her eyes, you know, we're not actually going to see the truth and, and what a powerful world that we can move into, right? If we can, if, you know, Charmian is one person, like what if we started doing this for more lives? Is there anything else you discovered in your research about Charmian's life that didn't make it into the book that you think would be interested, interesting for listeners to hear? Uh, yes, I think one of the things about Charmian's life that wasn't as well known is she had all these amazing friendships with women, famous women like Osa Martin um, was um, traveled with her husband all around the world as travel writers and made these films. Um, and uh, they were very close. Also Pauline French, she was an actress. She and Pauline French, they took uh, a trip in 1901 to Buffalo um, right after the president had been shot and then later died from his injuries. Uh, they were there the day that Annie, the first woman, went over the falls in a barrel. They were there on the same day. I mean, there's all these instances about Charmian and she was at, she went to almost every World's Fair that happened while she was alive. Um, she wrote about them. Just these details of her life that um, people didn't focus on. Like everyone liked to remember that she had an affair with Harry Houdini and that she called him his, her magic lover in her diary. And when I would read about these stories, it, you know, in the Houdini biographies, they were very much about, oh, Houdini was such a good husband, except for that one affair he had with Charmian. And it was just, you know, it was all Charmian. And the reality is so different when you read the actual documentation from their affair. She was just like, he was head over heels in love with her. They had like a three week affair. And then suddenly um, she was like, I don't want to do this again. You know, I don't want this intense. Harry Houdini was an intense personality. 
And she was like, I don't want another Jack in my life. Like I don't need another intense personality. And I really like being alone and having my time to write and having my time to grow um, and be independent like I was before Jack London. And so I think that side of the story, I, I see so many, I, I mean, I wish that more about her like that could have been in here. I mean, I wrote, like I said, a million poems, but this is what needed, you know, this is the structure that it needed to be. But I think that's what, that's, that's why I was lucky to get to write an entire biography about her as well. I like that idea of the biography and the collection kind of complementing each other that no one text is sort of the final word on someone's life, but there's always something to return to and, and more that can be said about them. It's a really freeing um, form for a poet to write in, you know, like I, I love writing prose, but there's things that I can only do in poetry and there's things I can only do in prose. And so even, you know, as I, I work on my next biography, it's a two book project because I know that this is, you know, how I'll have to process the archival work. You've said a little bit earlier about how poetry helps to, to process events. I was wondering, is there more that you feel like you wanna add about the different opportunities that poetry and prose like open up? Well, definitely. I think when we're working in poetry, uh, we are exploring the emotional landscape. Um, however, it's, you know, whatever it's cartography, right? And in, in prose, you are pretty close to, you know, you have to adhere to a narrative, right? So you don't have the same level of connotation and denotation. Like you don't, you don't have the metaphoric leaps as much. I mean, you can have metaphor and simile, but, but you don't have the same gaps of information and that really fuels what you can do in poetry it fuels your your um especially talking about something of someone being erased you know I think um in my poem about the frontier that term the frontier it, you know it became a poem that was it was really important to you know it's all over the page and those gaps and that that ability to move from from image to historical event to personal to you know like to, to to leap from different points of view was the only way that I could tell it and I think in a in a prose narrative you are you even in a um you know a really um interesting and you know avant-garde approach to biography you still have to adhere to some form of narrative and I felt like it was such a gift to be able to adhere to that, but also explore the space all around that, you know, that you do in a lyric biography. And I think, um, I wish all biographies were written in these two forms and that biography would be challenged, you know, like many people read my, my, my biography, which is, is not conventional as you might imagine. And they're like, well, I don't know, this isn't a regular biography. <laughs> I'm like, well, of course it's not. A, I'm a poet <laughs> and B, it's, it's a subject who's been erased. I mean, we have to approach it differently. And um, I think that was a, that was a really freeing moment for me who I really set off to write this as a literary biography. That was my original goal. And I did not write a literary biography at all. I think one poem that I really saw lean into sort of the, the use of erasure and space to convey the part of the history that was brushed over was um, winter of 1846 to 47. 
I was wondering if you would read that for us as well. I, I'd love to um, read this poem because this is the poem that was cut and changed the most in the book. It used to be a really long poem and you can find it on the Los Angeles Review <laughs> in its old form. Um, but I think that's that, that lesson of revision for me in this, for this poem was really uh, kind of ex exactly, it's a great example of, this is a story, you know, the, the winter of 1846 to, eight, to 1847, for those who don't know, is when the Donner Party was stuck at Donner Pass. And it is some, it's a, it's a milestone for all Californians. It's like something we learn in school. Of course, a single story of it and everyone kind of connects their history somehow to the Donner Party. And it's, it's a really, it's this pioneer, you know, milestone that everyone feels like they need to connect to. And so for me, it was, it's, it's something I had to process in order to understand my identity as a Westerner, as a Westerner whose, you know, family traveled here and took over um, people's land. Um, so this is the winter of 1846-47. There is a hole in the narrative, dear reader, except, will you do what it takes to survive or lie down in the deep drift to let go? 33 days they walked, starved, snow blind. What will be on the other side of this winter. Yellow monkey flowers, Shasta lilies throb from the frozen path that got me here. I was really excited to hear you read that one because of how visual it is. I was wondering like how it would translate. I was wondering if you could say more too about, about the process of revision in your, in your work. I think it like ties into to the process of the book as a whole, rethinking history and returning and, and leaning into that cyclical rather than a linear process. Yeah, so I am a, I am a poet that likes to compose poem a day projects. So a lot of times I begin with a poem a day, I often write a sonnet a day, and then I blow them up because I, the cadence that I, like my brain will like, it through we'll, we'll sort through an idea through a 10 10 syllable line 14 ish you know line container but I'm someone who goes through a lot of revision in order to find the right you know the exactly where I want the poem to be and some of these poems are many many years old and some of them have had some very drastic revision some of them took um, a few days to write, you know, it's, it just, I mean, they were long days, but I, I think what's important for me as a writer, um, I can still remember when I was an under, I was a graduate student when Brenda Hillman came to our, you know, to NYU and gave a craft talk. And she, def she, she talked about how when she writes, she goes through like a hundred revisions. And I was like, oh dear God, no. I'm never going to do that. That sounds exhausting, you know? And, you know, I, I also thought I knew everything about poetry at 24, you know? <laughs> Not that, you know, you can't. It, was, it wasn't until probably a decade later that um, when I really started to understand my own writing process and understanding my own, 
process towards finding the projects I wanted to work on and, and what I wanted, how I wanted to approach it, that I realized what that meant, the printer drafts. And it, it, it meant that you have to spend time with these drafts. Um, and I, I, I was a poet that was like, you know, I have a lot of energy as a person and as a writer and I write every day and I love to research. And, you know, I, I felt like I could get this, this book out. And, you know, an earlier version of this book was won some, you know, was a finalist for awards and, but it wasn't making it. And I'm so grateful that it didn't because it, it, it wasn't there yet. And it, it, I really had a wonderful chat with um, the late Jane Mead who lived in Napa, you know, where I teach. And we'd have these wonderful talks at, at her ranch that sadly burned in one of the later, in the Atlas fire. But we'd talk and, and she'd be like, Irish, you just need to slow down and let the poem, you know, let the project unfold and, and let it, let the poems, you know, sort themselves out. Like they're, they're gonna shake themselves out and it'll take time. And it was really the best advice that I'd ever gotten. I'm sure I've gotten it a million times, but it's the one time that, you know, it really spoke to me um, because I was doing some work in this project of, of seeing things in a way that I had never seen them before. And that, you know, what I've been taught, it was, I was just proving it. Um, what I believed in, I was shaking up and turning over. And um, of course it was going to take time. And of course it was going to take a lot of drafts. And some of these poems did have, Hundred drafts. So, thank you, Brenda Hillman, for cursing me. <laughs> That's like strangely comforting to hear, as someone who <laughs> is twenty-four and is just like coming to realize how little I actually know about poetry. It's nice to, to just, I guess, um, have that sort of like faith reaffirmed that it just needs time and, and it'll all shake itself out. You know, I think it's a great gift that we don't often get in like our MFA programs is that idea of like, if you don't have to go out and write it all, you know, publish it all right now, you know, like, I mean, it didn't happen for me right away. And I'm really grateful for it because I had that space to grow as a writer and create, you know, like get to the voice that I wanted to contribute. This is kind of returning to something we, we talked about earlier, but in one poem in particular, you talked about how the fires come through the same landscape again and again. And from, in my personal experience growing up in Southern California, I had to evacuate with my family quite often, like growing up um, to the point that like in our house, we don't have a lot of photographs up on the walls because they're all in boxes, just like ready to be transported at any given moment. And one thing I'm really interested in is the relationship between kind of the, the manifest destiny idea of the West as like, not only do we own this land, but we have like always owned it. Kind of that narrative of like, we're claiming what's rightfully ours. And the way that like with our climate situation becoming increasingly unstable, how fire and other events sort of start have started to destabilize that narrative and making possession like a literal possession but also ideas of possessing land or or having control over land more perilous I was wondering if you could speak to your personal experience of of the fires and if that has sort of influenced your thoughts on your possessions or your relationship to to your possessions or your place in California definitely um that poem ground truthing truthing was 
uh, really, when I heard that term um, by Terry Tempest Williams, I was like, oh my God, that's what it's called. Like, because I had where the fire path went over Fountain Grove in Santa Rosa in the Tubbs fire was a path, uh, it was this like dead area. It always been this dead area that in high school we would all go and park, you know, or and drink beer or whatever, you know? And um, I didn't understand when I came back from college why there were all these high end houses there. And, I, and But I also didn't understand why it was so dead before. And it wasn't until after the Tubbs fire that I realized, you know, I was told that what I had been seeing, that dead feeling to the land, like that all the markers that are saying, don't build here, this is a fire space, right? Was truth, you know, was ground truthing, right? The idea that the ground and the elements of nature were actually telling us the danger of the area because it's the fact of the, you know, the, the artifacts of the ground, right? And that idea that a fire had gone through there three times already and yet people were still rebuilding in that same area. It really, really shook my idea of how I see the landscape I grew up in, which was as I grew up, we were, you know, we dealt with floods. That was our big disaster and they were very severe, but not, you know, we, we, our house flooded in the 1986 flood um, here in Sonoma County, but not the same as the fire, right? Like that, that was, I mean, they're, they're both man-made the way that we're dealing with um, these things. Obviously climate change is a huge factor. The reason why we had floods was because we had completely destroyed the, the watershed, right? We had blocked, you know, the series of lakes called the Laguna de Santa Rosa that I write about in my second book. We had completely destroyed it, like moved lakes, closed them down, like, oh, there's great farmland underneath the lake, you know? Um, and so that totally caused all the floods. And then we rerouted the river, of course, because that's what you do as people that own the land, you know, manifest de destiny from, you know, the top to the middle of the earth. That's the idea. Like, oh, we have water rights. Yeah. That means I can use the water endlessly until, you know, all the way to the bottom of the earth, which is just insane. If you think about it, that's the actual rights that you have water when you have water rights here in California. And so the fires kind of disrupted that narrative for me. They kind of burned through that narrative, literally. And that term ground truthing made me look around and see all around me and the environment that I grew up in, how false the narrative I had been taught about it, about the, the actual you know, environment, the natural environment that I'd grown up in. It was a false narrative. And we weren't gonna be able to fix it until we actually remembered the true narrative, which is far beyond our actual occupation of the land. And so, you know, the reason why I wrote the series on the Laguna um, in my second book was because I had been asked to go on a walk in the Laguna. And I was like, ew, I'm not going there. Cause it was like, it was a um, sewage area, right? So I was like, why would I go walking in the Laguna? And they were like, well, it's really changed. You should come. And so I went, it's this beautiful, you know, redone area that's really coming back to life. I mean, they've done amazing work at the Laguna Foundation, but everybody walking around there, they had no idea about the history of the place. They had no idea of what had happened before to cause it to be a disaster area that still has toxic chemicals, you know? And 
it, it just horrifies me. The way that people don't remember history, it's the same thing that we don't remember natural history. And in, unless we start challenging these narratives, we're not actually gonna survive. You know, I mean, that's what's really disturbing. And so that, that was really, the fires interrupted my own personal narrative of the land. That was already something that was being questioned, but they totally rerouted the way I think about natural history and I really will never be the same because of it. Thank you for tuning in. That was this week's episode. Next month, podcast editor Lilia Schreifer talks with Kim McGowan and Michelle Ross about their story, 23 Safety Manuals, from Colorado Review's spring issue.